You're listening to the South Gippsland Shire Council Election Podcast 2021. As I sit here and acknowledge the Bunurong and Gurnai Kurnai people as traditional custodians of South Gippsland, and we all pay respect to their elders, past, present, and future, for they hold the memories, traditions, culture, and hopes of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people of Australia and of our Shire. Let's get into it. Okay, this episode we're here with Jenny Keery. She will correct any uh, pronunciations as I get going. Um, our only female candidate in the Streslecky Ward, manager of Milpara house community house in Currumburra. Uh, she's been doing that for near on eight years now originally from central Queensland and as Jenny has just explained to me uh, one thing we have in common is we don't really like talking about ourselves welcome Jenny <laughs> thank you very much Craig and thank you for providing me the opportunity to um, speak to constituents in a completely different format <laughs> Yeah, it's a different format, but it's also, I'd like to acknowledge at the front end too, um, Jenny's probably coming on to this a bit late because one, I took two weeks off work to do the campaign, which became a podcast. A lot of the people I was able to interview through the early bit um, aren't, you know, doing anything else often or they're farmers, they can really manage their time, but Jenny's time's pretty structured around managing the community house, especially with the COVID rules that are changing every other day. So uh, Jenny's found some time with us today, which is great. Um, all right, same question for everyone. Jenny, we kick off the episode. What's your favourite childhood memory? Oh, that's a, a difficult question to try to answer because I think I was really fortunate as I was growing up that um, it was a very ordinary childhood. And I'll probably touch on three different ones and they're three different memories. Um, one is of the period of time when um, we were able to go and do anything we wanted to do after school provided we were home by the time the streetlights came on. And quite often it was playing statues in the front yard with my um, four other siblings. So that, that's a, a really fond memory. Um, a second one is sitting with my grandfather um, as, a, as a young child with our four, my four other siblings all sitting on this club chair with him while he read us a story. So that was something that was really special. And the third one really relates to um, me getting my driver's license a number of years later that my dad built uh, my brother a soapbox derby billy cart and he would take us all to the biggest hill he could possibly find in Rockhampton and he would set us off on the course down this big hill. And, of course, my brother was really good, my younger brother was good, but for me... I always ended up in the gutter. You could guarantee my billy cart would go straight for a short period of time and then it would veer off and hit the curbing and I would go flying over the front of it. So I never knew how I was going to go with a driver's licence, but fingers crossed I've been okay so far. But um, they're three examples of my early childhood. Well, uh, I didn't know any of those stories, but uh, that last one there... I might be able to help you relive that childhood memory of Billy Carding uh, in Fish uh -huh. and a Billy Card event that might be coming up soon. Uh <laughs> oh, I'm not sure if I could. Actually, my, my children later on down the track, they built a Billy Card as well. And because where I lived in Rockhampton at the time, we had laneways behind us. And the kids in the neighbourhood would get out into the laneway and there'd be a cockatoo at one end of the lane and a cockatoo at the other end of the lane so that if any cars were going to turn into the laneway, um, they could get the early warning. But um, what my kids didn't realise when they go shooting out of the laneway is that there's a police car waiting for them and um, turned them around, sent them back and they weren't able to use their bully cart in the back lane anymore. Oh, fun killers. Fine. It's different now, isn't it? <laughs> it is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's okay. Oh. They survived. <laughs> yes. Well, the good thing about South Gibson, we've got enough hay to put around the edges of our billy cart tracks. That's right. 
Good track. Everyone. I'd still end up um, in the gutter though. <laughs> Um, so in our pre-chat that uh, you were saying you'd never dealt with a community house before, uh, taking on this current role in Karambara, do you want to talk to how you started there and, and what's happened over the eight years since you've been there? I will do. Um, when I first relocated from central Queensland, I had actually been working in citizen advocacy for people most vulnerable, most at risk. And part of that particular work was an evaluation that's done of the work to make sure that we're staying on focused and being coherent and um, consistent with the, the model of practice. And one of the things that came out of that um, evaluation was the, the, the lead evaluator saying, Jenny, you're a real community development person. And I thought, okay, is that what I'm doing? So when I arrived in Victoria and I was starting to apply for a number of jobs, one came up at the community house. And many people don't know that the a community house, the framework that it operates under is one of community development, one of strengthening community, building people's capacity to be able to care for themselves, to take that next step in life, uh, to be able to build their education if they didn't get a, a, a good go at it the first time round. Uh, it's a safe, nurturing environment for people who've been um, probably a little bit disillusioned by their early um, education experiences. But um, And the other part of that too was that Central Queensland did, doesn't have community houses the same way as Victoria does. Uh, there might be one or two located throughout the whole of Queensland, um, but Victoria, there's over 400 community houses and neighbourhood houses. So stepping into this whole network was, was completely brand new, learning how uh, different government departments work together. Uh, that's, a, that's a different operation. All these new faces coming through the door. Um, I was familiar in an environment where I knew just about everybody that would that I would see in the street. Coming to Victoria and starting at the community house, I had to start from the ground up again, um, not knowing very many people at all. But what really amazed me was through my contact at the community house, um, how quickly I became settled within the community of Corumburra. Um, from the contact of people coming through the house. So it was familiar face down the street, you've got a connection, you stop and say hello. So you start to feel as though you're more part of a community. And I think that to me is one of the most important aspects of what a community house can do is it's connecting people and helping them to feel welcome within their environment even if they're a little bit anxious about um, meeting new people or starting again, if they've, if they've gone through a fairly traumatic experience, a community house is a really good place to start again, um, to gently move yourself into a community, get to know a few people. And then one of the best parts about the job is being able to see people start to flourish. Um, and it doesn't matter. Um, people can come through the house for many, many different reasons. Um, and not everybody needs a, a hand up, um, but everybody is really generous with their time and, you know, being able to share those experiences, connect people. It's it's a really positive way to, to spend a day at work and I never know what's going to happen from one day to the next, um, who's going to come through the door. We have dealt with people who are suicidal. Um, and you can imagine when you've, you've only got one or two people that are working in a house, when you've got somebody who's in um, a very poor state of mind at that time, trying to have the time to sit down and work out how you can direct, get them to the next step because we're not counsellors, um, but what can we do to be able to assist that person to feel lighter? Uh, how can we take a straw off their back? Um, but, you know, that, that whole concept of community development, strengthening community, um, 
it's all wrapped up in, within the house. Um, one of the other aspects I think is with COVID that helped us, we had to actually change our direction in what we usually delivered um, because we've got restrictions on how many people we can have in the house. We've got restrictions on, um, you know, what sort of activities at the moment we can't run adult education because we're funded by the Department of Education and Training. Um, and they've mandated at the moment that adult education is not something we can deliver. But we're also funded by the Department of Families, Fairness and Housing. So we're recognised as uh, an authorised workplace responding to people in crisis and providing assistance um, through COVID, with whether it's connection through data, whether it's food for food bank, whether it's connecting through um, financial support to Services Australia, there's a lot we can do. But the constant pivot, um, what you can do, what you can't do, that is very trying and it takes a lot of time and energy to be able to respond as best you can in that type of environment. So. And um, so you've been there eight years. How long was the house running before you got there? Um, rough, Milpara rough. has been in its location uh, for 35 years, over 35 years. So yeah. it started out originally as, um, wasn't, I wouldn't call it childcare, but uh, a number of women got together and they really wanted to start learning again uh, to build their skills. But one of the, the other issues for them was that they also had young children at home and they didn't have people who could look after them. So what was actually devised was this particular facility where um, women could come to learn. And while the women were learning, other women who wanted to learn also took up the role of looking after the children while the other women um, were learning what they needed to do and they swapped it around. So. It grew exponentially from there. Um, we still only have 2.7 paid staff. Um, so we rely very much on volunteers. And um, it's, it's, it's amazing what we can actually achieve with minimal resources. So. And uh, what was the catalyst or was there a moment or was it a slow burn when you decided to run for council? Craig, I think because I'm so closely connected to community with a number of different projects, um, the community hub was something that was on the radar at the time when I started at Milpara um, and we we had to renew our commitment to being one of the lead tenants in that facility. Now, that was 2013. The conversation had been going on for about four years prior to that. So from 2013 to 2021, um, that particular process, knowing exactly what was involved in it and some of the hurdles that needed to be overcome, at the same time, they were discussing the streetscape and um, the town centre framework plan. So all those particular projects were being talked about, but there wasn't very much action. Um, I had fairly good relationships with the people that I needed to contact in relation to those projects. I've always had a good working re relationship with just about any area that I have contact with because it's about the connection that you make with that person and discussing what is possible and what is not and then moving on and, you know, getting the best outcome you possibly can. But, you know, through that process, Milpara took a seat at the Coranborough Roundtable, so that gave an even broader perspective of what was happening in community. Um, so just watching the twos and fros, what was possible, what was what were some of the barriers? Um, for me, I think it was the community wasn't connected. Uh, there was there was a lot of negative backlash whenever anything was raised about you know where we were up to in the process. But there's only so many things that we've got the capacity to be able to 
take charge of. There's so many levels of government, so many levels of red tape, the funding needed to be provided from somewhere. So there's, it's all these dominoes waiting to fall. But one of the biggest things that held it back was that the community itself wasn't united. And then with the roundtable becoming stronger in its focus and more united with the voices that came from other representational groups, we were actually able to make some steps forward um, into that particular area. So I think it was knowing what was going on in the background and hearing some of the issues that were unfolding in council chambers at the time and knowing that that wasn't good leadership and the people of South Gippsland deserved so much better than what they were getting, our reputation um, was being seriously impacted and that meant that attention was on us for the wrong reasons. So it's very unlikely that government departments are going to allocate money to an area that isn't performing well. They're concerned about the decisions that are being made. It really held back the opportunities that were potentially available to the Shire. Um, so much work had to be done in trying to repair relationships and try to progress anything through. So that was the catalyst, I think, for me um, in deciding that I wanted to stand. Uh, I understand what good governance is. I work from a position of integrity. I have a very clear understanding of who I am and what I stand for and what I won't compromise on. Um, I'm more than happy to work with others to find out what the common, common points are, where we, where we agree and what is important to us. Um, I'm happy, really happy to be able to do that because I believe a diverse range of perspectives helps to strengthen the outcome in the long run. Um, but it's being prepared to sit and make those discussions, find the common ground, find our, our united purpose and then go from there. So that's why I decided to step forward. Uh, I wanted to do something about a situation that was damaging to the Shire um, and to be able to take advantage of uh, working together with others to get the best outcomes for all of our areas. And if that means attracting funding to some of our projects, if we've got projects that we know are, they're actually based in consultation with community, everybody gets a fair slice of it because you've gone to each of the individual townships and locations to find out exactly what's important to those communities and try to set that plan so it starts to take shape right across the Shire, that everybody gets a piece of the, the, the rates pie, I suppose. So, yeah, that's why I was still in a long way around. Yeah, no, well, you answered the first, I think you answered uh, in the Sentinel Times to speak about the top five issues, and one of them was um, securing funding for projects that have been identified. So I guess that sort of is just being wrapped up there, trying to get that quality back in council so we can lobby in a way where we're respected and I'll listen. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, but that we can actually show that we are moving in a particular direction and we have issues like um, climate change, our impact on our environment, trying to support our farmers, the agriculture industry, how we can... How, how we can put all those points together and factor them in in the overall plan. Um, it's uh, whether that's going to be possible or not, I don't know, but it's the lenses that I'd like to review decisions from. Yeah, there's always inverted commas, not the best terminology, winners and losers, but I think it doesn't matter what side you're on after the decision's made. I think everyone's a lot calmer about the decision if they've just been included in the conversation along the way. That's right. Yeah. Uh, it's the people yeah. you don't invite into a conversation that get upset. Yeah, and then you have to question yourself as to why you're not inviting those people. And 
That's you right. know, it's yeah. it's not great leadership if it's uh, if the agendas, the personal agendas, sneak in there. Um, no. I've actually been um, sent some information about some issues that I need that need to be considered by new councillors um, when council meets again, and I think. Um, Who's put this information together? How much consultation has gone into it? Is it one person's perspective? And if it's one person's perspective, it's an idea. So mm. that idea is something that gets factored in with the other ideas too. So you get the best possible outcome. Uh, you can't just give somebody a paper and say, this is what we should do and expect them to pick it up and run with it. That it, That's not community consultation. Um, and that's not good governance either. Yeah, I don't think good governance is um, always worrying about the squeaky wheel. Mm. <laughs> you know, trying to look after the squeaky wheel only, the, the loud yeah, bit. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> no, and I, I think uh, you can spend a lot of time and energy staying in one place by um, attending to the squeaky wheel. I think I would give the squeaky wheel some oil and say, go and take care of it. <laughs> Yeah, or get a new wheel, something like that. That's right. <laughs> Start again. Um, so the other points you've got here in the Sentinel, um, just it's focusing around growth without adding burden to the rate payer. Mm. Do you want to sort of speak to that? Well, I think one of the ways we can keep the rates at a fairly reasonable level is that we need to grow the rate base. So there are more people contributing to, um, to the costs of running the Shire, essentially. But it's managing that in an appropriate way that you've got the infrastructure, you're looking at the employment area uh, to support population growth in certain areas. It's also factoring in if there are large um, development areas opened up for housing, what sort of, you know, what sort of amenity are they going to have if they don't have transport to be able to go and do their shopping or they're not going to be able to get to work because there's no public transport. Did I cut? I think I just covered that. I'm not quite sure. No, one was no, shopping. No, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, one was shopping, one was transport to be able to get to and from work. Um, what sort of what sort of housing is going to go there looking at the size of the allotments? Um, but it's also factoring in some areas, some of the blocks of land in that development, setting that aside for affordable or social housing. And by that, I don't mean like the old housing commission models where you've got 10 houses in one street um, that are all social housing or um, like the old housing commission areas. The only way that you reduce the potential of neighbourhood fatigue is by breaking those houses up into broader areas within the, the, the housing allocations. So you might have one house in one street, the same if, if there are 10 streets, one house in each street um, so that the neighbourhood doesn't get um, overburdened with too many people from either low socioeconomic background, which there's nothing wrong with low socioeconomic background. It just means you need some support to be able to keep a roof over your head. Not everybody earns um, a huge wage, but they still have to support their family. And if there's housing available that they can afford, Within a within a neighbourhood, then the best that's going to be the best outcome for everybody in the long run. Um, yeah. So it's um... it's factoring in those areas. Sorry, my screen has just decided that it's going to do scanning or something. <laughs> Technology, don't you Technology. love it? Technology. <laughs> oh well, no one's watching us, so it's all good. Yeah. Um, so it's looking at managing growth, Craig. Um, yeah and getting the best outcome for the people who are moving in, stabilising the rates so that you've got more people contributing to the rates, um, the, the rates income for council and um, 
you know, it's not putting extra burden on our current ratepayers. So it's managing that in the best way possible. And um, you've got in the paper there improving amenities. Are there any particular amenities that you are aware of, particularly in the Streslecky, I guess, or was that okay. just a... Amenities in that particular regard is looking at how livable a place is. So it's talking to the people in those particular communities and making sure that there's green space, um, making sure there's places for kids to be able to play um, using outside spaces. So it's looking at the amenity, the livability of that particular area, as well as factoring in, you know, are they close to any sport or rec reserves? What else is around the area that could be built on um, to provide more facilities for people to be able to enjoy and get together? So. And I want to go back, I want to loop back a little bit to the Karambara hub, I guess. Yep. You so it seemed like quite a journey to get to this point where it's pretty much in its eleventh hour stage of happening. Um, are you happy with the location? I am happy with the location. It's not yeah. my first, my personal first choice of location. Mm -hmm. um, my first choice of location and it came about through the, the railway station um, building and the refurbishment there, started with that project and just saw the amount of land, the flat land in Karambara, and thought, wow, this would be an amazing place as um, a town square or a main community space for people to be able to use and get together. Uh, and I thought, that would be a really good place for the community hub, a nice centrally located. Um, so I suppose I, I started that bandwagon at a KRT meeting once when I said, I want all that land and I want the hub to be there. But realistically, um, going through the whole lot of the processes about the, the heritage overlays, um, to do with the rail trail going through and the skate park which is going up there the delays in the building permit process have been incredible over the last 12 months to be able to build the community hub in that location um it's not feasible to build a capital works project on a piece of land that council doesn't own that you only have an 18-year lease for it and the potential for rail to be returned through that rail corridor, um, that would not be a really good place to have a community hub if the rail, the rail did end up coming through there. So they, they went back to the drawing board and they had a look at the main site that was identified in the original town centre framework plan, uh, the one that was identified as the location of the hub, and that's where it's gone back to. Uh, there was thorough review of the other two sites that were identified and the, the, the potential for activating the main street and activating Little Commercial Street as well as linking to the rail precinct and what was available there was the best option um, to be selected at the time. Yeah. And so I guess you can talk to it. Well, I'm, I'm feeling, yeah, it is literally a guess. I'm guessing you can talk to it because you were sitting in on most of those meetings across the whole process. Since they started, once they identified where, where the hub was going to be, it was talking to the architects and designers about how the spaces were going to be used. Uh, so there's the library, there's Milpara, the senior citizens, the historical society, um, how they were going to be used. When we had classes, we've got the food bank, we've got Centrelink, so we needed to factor those in. We've got a computer lab, so that needed to be uh, made, 
that had to be installed as well. And we've currently got two classrooms where we are at Milpara that um, pre-COVID, we could have probably 20 people in each of those spaces at a squeeze if people didn't mind being close. So they were the criteria that we needed to have factored into the community hub space. Um, so there was a bit of toing and froing and a number of design changes to be able to factor that in. But I think the potential for Corumburra um, with what will be available in the community hub for community to be able to use will be really beneficial in, in the long run once it's all constructed. But yes, having input into that, into, uh, you know, where all the PowerPoints go, where the data goes, where the server goes, uh, where are the entry and exit points, where are the accessible toilets, where's a wet space for a classroom, how's the historical society going to get in. We've got classes after hours, so we also had to factor in how access was going to be gained for our classes, uh, because it's going to be a 24 hour library anyway. So. Um, you know, factoring in all those particular aspects and how Milpara could work um, in conjunction with the library so that we're actually sharing activities. There's great potential there um, for us to be able to work with the library. And so, yes. the other candidates in the race, so to speak, that are talking about revisiting its location, have they been in any of these meetings and understood the process to get to this point? Um, I believe they would have been involved in the initial conversations at the council table about where the community hub was going to be located. I believe they would have known about the 18 year lease. Um, they may not have been involved in the day to day planning of the hub because I think that was happening outside um, after the council itself was dismissed. Um, but the councillors who were at the table would understand very clearly that when you've appointed an architect to do drawings and to draw up specifications, you've signed a contract with builders. Um, it might be nice and easy to say that we'll review where the community hub is going to be located, but how many dollars are going to be wasted by, um, you know, trying to get out of, of a, a legally binding contract. Uh, it's just not realistic or feasible. Yeah, I guess I was just surprised by some of those candidacy um, Craig, campaign to be points because um, I read the municipal um, monitors report a few, um, only last week, I wasn't looking back, but it's like, oh, well, these old candidates are in the race. I really do. I can't ignore that anymore. I have to understand what uh, events are tied to their name. And part of that report was talking about um, this very thing, things that have already been decided on and forcing a scenario to revisit a decision that's already been made. It just that's feels right. like it's happening again. I think that's a hallmark, unfortunately, of one of the one of the aspects that brought about the downfall of the previous council. And um, for me, I think being on the Corrinborough Roundtable and being privy to some of the conversations around what was happening for the supermarket, the proposed supermarket that was going to go into um, where the library is once the library's moved. And knowing how delicate some of those conversations were, um, I hadn't realised exactly what it was that made the, um, the purchaser back out of that particular decision. But it was only reading through the monitor's report that I had that aha moment that um, the mayor at the time and a councillor actually told the CEO that they couldn't attend this particular meeting and they stepped in to, to have, a, have a conversation with the, the person who was wanting to build the supermarket. And that particular um, person left the conversation uh, and said, I'm not going, in, I'm not building my supermarket there anymore. So 
councillors overstepping their role against a decision that was actually made by council, going against that council decision and meeting in private treaty with, um, with the particular purchaser of the land, the developer, uh, that put a hold on so many plans for Corumburra. And unfortunately, what actually unfolded there was um, the council administration, not the administrators, that's a completely different thing, but the council administration was blamed for the delay. But it wasn't the council administration, it was the council, the, it was representatives of council against what they should have been doing who actually stalled that process. So, and that cost quite a lot of money. Yeah. Um, all right. So to put it in context for anyone who's listening, it is Monday the 11th of October at 7pm. So I'm not expecting you to respond or talk to this point if you don't wish, Jenny. It's just something... So I want to reframe everything, uh, why this podcast came into existence. It came into existence for the voter. The whole premise of this podcast is for the voter. If the voter has to decide on who the next councillors are, where do they get that information from? So you have two newspapers, three if, uh, three with the Mirror, Sentinel and South Gippsland Voices. So you've got media has a long, a big part to play in how people consume information and make decisions. So um, from reading the Monitor's report and speaking to revisiting decisions, I would think revisiting decisions is bad governance. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? It is bad governance. Okay, so based um, on that understanding, if decisions are made by people in the role who are put there to make those decisions and they make them, and then people come along saying, well, I don't agree with that decision, let's go and revisit it again, um, and that is bad governance, I'm going to struggle here to understand why Don Hill in his paper has put himself as a big green tick under his little column that he created about improved governance because I don't see any improvement in running for council and wanting to change a decision that's already been made again. I'm very confused. Um, so as a voter, I just ask you to go out there and really investigate um, what I'm saying. Uh, my phone number's out there. Welcome to ring me, ask me. This is not to put Jenny in this position. It's just that today's the day I grab this paper and we've just had a conversation around um, something quite big in our shire that's exciting, Kyrenborough Community Hub. And there's people running for council um, who are known to have bad governance issues and revisit decisions that are already been made. And it just feels like it's happening again already. Yeah, uh, I believe you're right there, Craig. And um, I don't understand how someone can run on good governance, governance and transparency when that's the complete opposite of what they've provided to us in the past. And they're asking us again to put our faith and trust in them that they won't do the same thing again. Um, yeah. I don't, I, I don't have any faith that, um, that the same people, if given the opportunity again, wouldn't do the same thing. Um, well, I'm just, just feeling some... out that it's happening. I can see it happening already. It's not like they're not going to do it again. They're doing it. I, <laughs> they're doing I it already. Received... Yeah. I received a, an email from somebody asking for some information about a proposal. Um, would we support this particular proposal if we were elected in into council? And, you know, I, I don't know whether council would approve it or not, but I said what I was really interested in is why you feel you need to have support of the new councillors coming or potential new councillors coming in and what do you see as the barriers to you going through a, a normal process of having your application considered. Um, and, you know, as I said, I'd be happy to have a look at it and I'd keep my ears open to hear if, to see if I had any word on it. But one of the former councillors responded immediately, yes, you can. And I thought, what? 
You can't do that. You can no individual counsellor has a position of power over anybody else. The only power the counsellors have is when they're actually sitting at the table. And I think this is where egos have, um, have gotten in the way of good governance and not following the due processes that are set down in the legislation for counsellors to be able to make the, the appropriate decisions at the time within the procedures that are available to them to be able to do. It's set out in black and white in the Local Government Act, um, but some people appeared to know better than others. So. Yeah, well, it does hurt when you think you've come up with awesome ideas and then you do community meetings and because we just went through it with our parking here in Fish Creek and I did all these mud maps of all these things we could do and then I got people in a room and said, all right, here's textures, cross it out, do what you want. And so many of what I thought were awesome ideas got crossed out. And it was not a great little moment in my mind, but it wasn't for me to make that decision. It was for our community too. So the map got redone, put out to the group again. Is this everything that we all talked about? Is this everything we agreed to? Um, everyone said yes. Then we put it out to the community for a wider survey. We've had this steering committee. We've come up with this. You know, everyone else want to put it two cents worth in. Um, and then we finished that work off with the community and gave that to the council so they could tie that to the tender document to get a company to come in and survey our town. But at least, but yeah, there was a lot of good, I, I thought there was great ideas of mine in there, but, <laughs> you know, so it's not fun when you have a good idea and not everyone agrees with it, but that's, no, that's the way it goes. The, was the plan at the end a better looking plan than what you envisaged in the first place? I learned lots through it because I wanted to, because I heard Tura got horse stables and then I heard the council were going to do horse stables along the rail trail every second town, which makes up Fish Creek. And I thought, oh, we need horse stables there. And then through that process, they're like, <laughs> you know, all the horses just park on the edge of town and ride their horses up under the rail trail down there. We sort of already got them. I went, oh, okay. And then we had our... Um, walk for Fleur Stephanie the other week along the rail trail and yeah. yeah 10 horse floats turn up they all park on that part of town and they all got on the rail trail so like, oh, I'm obviously not a horse person or I would have known that already and I wouldn't <laughs> have drawn the stables where I drew them on the map <laughs> so yeah there was a lot essentially what you're saying Craig is that you didn't have all the answers oh but I thought I did I bet you thought you did, yeah. But that's the whole idea about consultation yeah. and asking questions of other people that what you'll end up with in the long run is mm. so much uh, so much more effective. Yeah. But you also give people ownership of the project if they've actually contributed to how it looks in the long run. And that in itself is building community. Um, if you can get community to take ownership of particular areas, it's going to be safer uh, for everybody to be able to use. People will look after it, they'll be proud of it, and that's what they'll be sharing with their friends and neighbours, um, their friends and relatives who might live elsewhere. They'll bring them out to Corumbara or bring them out to the Shire, wherever it happens to be. And, you know, that's how we get people coming that's the tourist um yeah that's the tourism dollar at its best i suppose yeah um the yeah i'm very new in this community space so the council came to us in february saying oh we've got 15 grand for you for outdoor seating and we're like oh crap we're that group i didn't realize i just became <laughs> part of the group that got serious all of a sudden i was like shit i need people so anyway i just i just really see my job uh is getting community in the room when there's a serious decision to be made i just that's all i see my job is this is filling the it's room extra with as challenging many people as... yeah <laughs> it is it's but extra challenging with COVID, isn't it getting people into a room yeah, we're quite lucky our big ones happened in gaps and sure we had delays and had to shuffle things. But um, yeah, I just see, I don't know, it, it's just clearer and clearer to me every day that all these leadership roles within community, some of the key things is just fill the room. <laughs> if you fill the room and get everyone engaged, the answers come. <laughs> That's right. And, you know, one of the, one of the difficulties, I suppose, is there's always going to be a louder voice 
in a community meeting, not everybody has a chance to put their their two bobs worth in, showing my age now with two bob there. Um, (laughs) But there's a number of different mechanisms that you can use in a number of forums where you've got a keyboard and you can type your suggestion in and it gets collated with everything else. Those types of processes um, would be really valuable um, to collecting information from people. Yeah, we had um, our sewage meeting, um, 75 people in the hall, um, and we were really concerned about that very issue. A couple of our really passionate community members had the chance, had the opportunity to potentially own that space, become the squeaky wheel, so to speak. Um, So we just broke everyone up into tables of 10 and gave them workbooks and every table got. So we sort of, yeah, filling the rooms one piece, but then controlling, uh, facilitating the space in a constructive Mm. way is is also very important. Yeah. Yeah, As I said before, it's the people who aren't invited into the conversation that you'll have difficulty with in the long run. Um, 100%. I went everywhere around town. So I'm just telling you about this meeting. So I get to the other side and you can't tell me you didn't know about it. (laughs) I just want you to come if you want to. (laughs) (laughs) You just got to tell everyone. Uh, Yeah. No, but there'll still be people who I didn't know anything about that. Why wasn't I told? Yeah, I know. <laughs> well, I was walking the dog one day and um, I just told someone bringing their bins in and I got, you know, grunted at. I was like, that'll never happen. We've been there before. But then his wife came along and said, oh, you told my husband he was bringing the bins in. He probably growled at you, but I thought this is great. You know, so you just never know what moment is going to get someone in the room. Um, <laughs> Um, Jenny, I think we've waffled on. I'm enjoying this conversation. Um, now, um, if we, um, we're going to understand you a little bit more about what you'll do with our vote, what would you like the voters of Streslecky to know? Oh, that I give 100% to every task I take on. Um, I didn't make the decision lightly. I needed to factor in work-life balance. Uh, I needed to factor in that I haven't seen my son and my grandchildren in Townsville since Christmas time and I'd like to be able to to go and see them. Um, I spoke to my daughter and her partner before she went back to San Francisco. Uh, So I needed to check in with the people who are my support network and the ones that make my life uh, sort of give my life the value that I really appreciate. Um, uh, I needed to check with them. So making this decision hasn't come lightly. I know what I'm stepping into. I know that it's not going to be an easy road to start off with as we try to rebuild from the reputation of council from what was previously there. I'd like to change the culture of the way we interact with people, not just at the council table, but with council staff um, and the community themselves. There's been, I really don't like the way we seem to have come about in to some such a, an aggressive way of engaging with each other. Uh, I think we need to be more respectful and in our engagements, if somebody wants me to take them seriously, I'm not gonna take notice of someone who's yelling at me. I would like people to sit down with me and tell me why this project is so important. What aren't I thinking about? So that I can understand why it's so important and why it should be done. If there's a breakdown in a service area, I want to know why it's breaking down. I can't promise to fix one particular issue, but what I can do is try to find out where the breakdown of information is happening so that jobs aren't getting done. Um, So they're the sorts of things I'd really like to find. Why isn't our council running as efficiently and effectively as it could, should? Has there been too much interference? Uh, COVID has really impacted on service delivery. Council itself is really a service operation. So when you can't have your staff meeting together to share ideas and thoughts and everything takes longer, uh, it's understandable that 
um, some things do take longer, but what other provisions can we make? What other systems can we engage with to be able to make sure some of this doesn't break down in the same way? So it's respectful relationships right across the board and understanding that sometimes things do go wrong, but to try to fix them in the best possible way instead of, you know, blowing, blowing, blowing off, blowing off sorry, blowing steam up um, at somebody for not getting something done when you, when you think it should be done. There could be many reasons behind that. So we don't know the journey, but um, yes, I, I do that, want to be part of that. I guess that's why I asked about, you know, you were sitting in on all those hub meetings and you were through 2013, like if someone just walked past and read one article and then started yelling at why the hub's in that spot, um, it's very ill-informed and I <laughs> wouldn't, yeah, I, I would uh, struggle with patience, <laughs> dealing with people, um, <laughs> getting um, vo very vocal about one point that they haven't investigated at least two or three layers deeper before they mm. want to tie their boat to that ship so to speak yeah. you know when they when they took the bought the first design for us for the potential community hub which was sited on the railway land before we found out that we couldn't get the length of sorry not we the council couldn't get the the, the length of lease that would have made it viable in that particular location the space that Milpara had was it wasn't satisfactory it wasn't suitable to our particular needs we will it was being looked at that we would have uh, a reception area right in front of the toilets and then the food bank would be down around the back and our training training rooms would be over in the railway station building for me duty of care to my staff duty of care to the participants in classes that wasn't going to be possible um, people coming to the food bank i need to be able to see what's happening on a, what's happening within my workplace so that I'm responsible for OH and S. It wasn't going to be suitable. And my committee of governance, I said, I went to them and I recommended that we couldn't accept the design the way it was because it just wasn't going to be practical to um, Milpara's operations. I'm, my job, I'm overseen by a committee of governance. And I don't make the decisions. I can make recommendations. I can provide information that helps the Committee of Governance to make an informed decision. And, you know, having that frank conversation with them, explaining why we couldn't operate with that particular model, they understood that. And, yes, we did say that we could not be part of the community hub with its design the way it was in that location. Um, Fortunately, we, it's not a decision we had to take at that stage because it just wasn't feasible to put the hub in that particular location. So they started again and the new site that they that it's gone to, they designed the building around the environment in which it's located. They used the, the slope of the land to be able to maximise the, the aspect out to the west. Uh, we're looking out over the hills. So... And the design of the building, it's going to suit the needs of, of the people who are working from it, as well as the community who will be using the spaces. So, um, yeah. Yeah, sounds like a great project. It's a very mm. exciting for the community. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, good piece of work. It's almost it's a, done. Yeah, it's a very diverse field working in a community house. You go from micro to macro in the blink of an eye. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it sounds like you're uh, wearing a lot of hats. Uh, architecture to yeah. OH&S to um, floor design. One of, one of the questions that I had recently was, you know, will I stay in my job? Um, will I resign from Milpara if I'm elected to council because I'm paid by the Shire? Uh, no, I'm not paid by the Shire. We're in a Shire building that we lease, the same as the senior sits do, the same as the historical society, the same as, you know, other groups around Corrumbarrow, around the Shire. We pay our lease. We actually 
maintain and preserve a council asset. So we're working for the ratepayers in keeping one of their investments in good condition. We're funded by Department of Families, Fairness and Housing. That covers my role. Department of Education and Training for our adult and community further education classes. We have a Centrelink agency on site that Services Australia uh, provides the funding for, which is federal government. And we generate income for ourselves, which helps to cover some of the other staff wages. So we're, we're completely independent from any of those particular areas and we're accountable to those funding bodies uh, for everything that we do. So, you know, can I just say, I do have to analyze complex data. Um, there's been something that was posted in a, a newspaper that said, I don't have the ability to be able to analyze complex data. My goodness. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad you said all that. And just for the record, I emailed the editors in, of that newspaper today just to ask how they collated their information and when they went to publish that information from when they, you know, my, my understanding is that paper gets published quite a ways off, you know, the, they stop. Um, the ability to add to that paper quite a distance in the future. Mm. So, yeah, I've got a lot of questions around that too. They've been posted to the editor, so uh, watch this space. Um, awesome, it's, Jenny, it's I'm really glad you explained that. I'm just going to say it's really unfortunate that um, many people in the community only received that newspaper um, to collect their news. Uh, and there's, you know, South, the Sentinel Times is online. So if you've got computer technology, you can get that particular news or any other newspapers, you can get them online. There's social media, um, but that particular paper has been printing what it has been printing for over two years now. And many people see it as a legitimate source of knowledgeable and reputable information. Um, I don't believe it is knowledgeable and reputable information. I believe, me personally, that it's a propaganda paper. And um, I believe our, the citizens of our communities um, are being given a disservice um, in what they're receiving. So. Yes, it's a, <laughs> it's a shame it gets so much air time, but it has to be dealt with. Um, yeah. Cool, cool. Well, uh, last question. If you had to sit in the shoes of an, a politician, dead or alive, which mm -hmm. one would it be and why? Well, I think I've already spoken to you about this, that I would have chosen a Jacinta Ardern, but she's across the... Um, oh, well, you know, in my question, world. I didn't say Australia, just so you know. Oh, oh sorry, I wasn't listening. <laughs> That's okay. Normally it's an Australian was, politician, but I've chosen... I was not... <laughs> listening, but I didn't hear. That's a no. big problem with a lot of people. Jenny, this is uh, the advantage of being later on the podcast because I have to, once again, I'll constantly take my hat off to the people that came on early because they had no idea what this format was going to be. But there uh, are advantages to coming on late because we can bend the questions now because it's getting a bit oh. tired. <laughs> so everyone's heard this question, so we can twist it a little bit. Well, it's not so much Jacinta Ardern. I really admire the way she's dealt with quite a number of um, critical situations during her period of time, um, you know, with the terrorist shooting, um, the, the dealing with COVID, you know, being a mum coming through that particular level of government. I just really appreciate how genuine that she is when she's um, when she is speaking to the people of New Zealand. But I will say that I've recently watched um, Annabelle Crabb and Misrepresented, and I think there were five or six women politicians um, who were highlighted in that program. Really good to watch, um, seeing different perspectives of Bronwyn Bishop and Cheryl Kono, um, Julia Gillard. While I'm, I'm not a 
political party person. I do admire Julia um, for standing strong despite what was shoved at her that never should have been, never would have been allowed if it was a male politician. Um, but, you know, just some of the, the stories of some of the first women politicians who stepped into parliament and there was no women's toilet there. So if they needed a bathroom break, they had to race home and then come back. Uh, things changed quite a lot. So <laughs> yeah, I suppose to... for me, I admire the women who have gone before me, um, who have uh, provided opportunities to all women, young women coming through, to not be limited by other people's expectations. Uh, you can do it. If you believe in something enough and you want to make a change, there's no reason you can't. Um, but be prepared for the backlash from some who aren't still aren't ready to uh, let women come into their own. Um. Yes, I've seen that ABC series, Annabelle Crabb. She's awesome. And it's, a, it's, it's exciting that women are watching it and feeling empowered from it. But I would implore men who haven't watched it to go and uncomfortably watch it. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm lucky in a lot of ways that I have a son and a daughter there. My daughter, she did her Bachelor of Performing Arts and Mastered in Journalism before she took on media and communications roles with Australian Story and then Shine Lawyers. And now she's doing media and communications for the Global Food Institute. She wanted to get in on the ground with um, clean meats, plant-based proteins. So she followed that particular passion. And um, that's why she's in San Francisco at the moment. And my son has three trades under his belt. Um, very nice young man. So, you know, chalk and cheese they are, but watching them grow from the experiences that we had with them growing up, um, I'm proud to say that they're both mine and, yeah, that, you know, they're doing good things with their lives. And I think if that's the legacy for me in the long run, that that's what keeps me grounded as well. So. Awesome. Well, I look forward to meeting all of those awesome sounding humans one day when they're back from San Francisco <laughs> and everyone can move around a bit more. Now, for the record, uh, I, have answer, I have asked this question to the paper, but I'm not holding my breath about getting an answer, but I do have a candidate in front of me. So based on that little, um, what did they call it? A grading scale oh. of candidates um, oh, and how you were graded. Did that paper reach out to you at all to ask you um, about your qualifications uh, before going to publish? No, they didn't. You've no, heard not at all. That? Yeah. No. I would expect and I'll hear this from every candidate and I will be reaching out to every candidate and trying to get some them on the record to just talk to that that piece of work because it's certainly a piece of work um, to try and be able to get other voices heard to the their truth of that. Yeah. Well, I'm all in red, so that must mean I'm a threat in some way. <laughs> that's so. what I'm thinking. <laughs> the the female the female that's all in red. Uh, oh, that's right. There's very scary <laughs> humans to some. Um, Anyway, Jenny, uh, lovely to finally meet you and catch up. Um, good luck with the rest of your campaign. And thank you, Craig. Regardless of what happens, I look forward to working with you on some capacity in the near future. Uh, I look forward to, to coming down and visiting you and catching up with you too. Uh, yeah. That's been the best part of the campaign, you know, is the people I've had a chance to meet um, yeah. and some of the things that I've learned. I didn't know about the Common Ground Project. Um, prior to dropping a book back off to Venus Bay and I was given a, a tour of that area and seeing the land that um, they want to return back to the saltwater marsh that it was. Uh, preserving areas like that is so important. Um, so, yes, I've, I've been very fortunate, very, very lucky that um, not, sorry, I shouldn't say that, it's not luck. You make it happen yourself. And we're, yeah, we're very make, good at 
make your own luck in the world. And there are some amazing, amazing candidates with um, pure ideals and energy ready to go and serve our Shire. So let's glass half full it at the end of the episode. And we're well set to have a great three years. Thank you very much, Craig. I've appreciated the opportunity. No worries. Bye for now. Bye. To see all the candidates in one place so you can understand who is in your ward and who you can vote for, go to craigprivet.com.au, found in the show notes, and the candidate you just listened to will have all their contact details in the show notes as well. Share the podcast far and wide, and let's have a really open and transparent election. Bye for now.